Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have one of my favorite return guests, Jill Robbins. She's the founder of Business Fierce and is a long-serving procurement expert, uh, having worked in many corporates and uh, for the last 25 years been involved in strategic sourcing of products and services. Jill, would you mind just giving us um, 30 to 60 seconds on your history and what you do today? Absolutely. Thanks, Marcus. Happy to be back and chatting with you again. Yes, at Business Fierce, we um, have combined all the experience I've had in corporate America for the last 25 years, um, being sold to by the largest companies around the world. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. So kind of turning that on its head and training our clients how to become procurement insiders and effectively manage relationships in a proactive way, as well as negotiate with procurement so they understand the priorities and truly how the value chain connects. Excellent. So I have to ask the question, because I haven't done it on air before, why (laughs) business fierce? (laughs) Well, because I'm fierce and in business, (laughs) as my um, friends and colleagues would say, it's a domain Marcus, that I purchased probably 10 years ago, you know, it's kind of become our our mantra and I think it fits well. So you definitely want Jill on your side of the negotiating table. So let, let me ask you this. What are the functions of procurement for those people who aren't familiar? Just <laughs> um, yeah, to, uh, school 101 on the functions of procurement, please. Yeah, you know, so procurement is made up of strategic sourcing and purchase to pay and accounts payable. Oftentimes, you know, people will be selling, you know, they'll close a deal and they think that their sourcing person issues the purchase order and then, you know, processes the invoice. But really it's made up of, you know, category strategy first. So scoping, you know, what the needs are of the business looking at spend, historical spend, and what the marketplace has to offer. Then you get into the sourcing process, which is demand forecasting. You know, you may launch a competitive process, which could be an RFP, an RFQ. There you negotiate with your suppliers. You select you those suppliers, sign the contract, and then implement. Then it gets into the P2P process. That's where the the tactical procurement takes place. Then you've got the ongoing supplier relationship management and then the performance management. So those are the subsets of the entire procurement and source to pay process. Thank you. So you mentioned uh, strategic sourcing I get. Uh, What does purchase to pay mean? So that's the tactical side. So they're setting up the suppliers in the ERP system, processing purchase requisitions, issuing purchase orders, doing the goods and services receipt. And then usually if it's set up properly, the ongoing compliance monitoring and invoice matching. Okay. And I know it's going to sound like a really basic question, but what are accounts payable? So accounts payable are the ones within that P2P shop, if you will, that are processing payment to suppliers. Okay. So Tell me this, how are procurement people compensated, recognized, and rewarded? (laughs) Oh, this is the the billion-dollar question, right? They are not compensated by the savings that they deliver. 
Oftentimes, salespeople think that procurement is compensated in the same way with a commission based on X percent of their savings. And that is truly not the case. You know, it's around driving efficiency within the company, getting the right supplier at the right time at the right price. So matching all of those attributes, ensuring that the suppliers are bringing innovative ideas to the table, internal collaboration and trust is key with stakeholders. So, you know, similar to the sales side, um, they're selling essentially services to internal stakeholders so that they can properly manage their categories internally and drive compliance with those approved suppliers. They want to prevent issues, supply chain issues. You know, what we've seen recently with COVID, some suppliers and extended supply chain had a lot of disruption. So procurement is looking to ensure that continuity of supply as well, whether it's a good or service, because, you know, laptops were an issue. Zoom had issues early on in COVID, privacy, security. So, you know, procurement wants to make sure they've got the right KPIs in the contract and the right CYAs in place, if you will, to ensure that the the company um, does not get screwed long-term. And by CYAs, I'm assuming that means cover your ass. Absolutely, yes. Excellent, okay. So again, what do you mean by categories for those people who are not familiar with the terminology? Yeah, so procurement is usually split between direct and indirect. So direct is the materials that go into a product or a service. And then indirect would be anything that's not included in the cost of goods sold. And then categories within that could be transportation, logistics, could be, you know, HR benefits, information technology. And then you break that down, hardware, software, security. So those would be examples of spin categories. So unless you're operating uh, as you're selling to a very, very large organization where the procurement and purchasing people are likely to specialize, it strikes me that the majority of purchasing people in um, your average company are likely to be generalists. So they're going to have to cover all that range of categories. Fair? That is fair. They can be a jack of all trades for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how often when you're selling to that type of organization with that type of purchasing professional, are you dealing with someone who doesn't really necessarily understand all the ramifications And what would you advise people to do when they are selling to somebody like that? Yeah, you know, I think ask what the priorities are of the company. So, you know, in that specific space, so if they're selling, you know, a SaaS solution, what are the objectives with X business area? Let's say it's compliance. Let's say it's audit. What are the objectives? So, you know, lay that out and then understand how, your solution will then bring value and either solve a problem or prevent a problem long-term. Okay. So I want to explore the difference between a strategic purchasing department Mm -hmm. and a reactive tactical one. Let's start with the strategic and how we should approach them. Yeah. So, you know, with strategic sourcing and strategic procurement, kind of, I would call it full value procurement. It's really on the full performance. You know, typically they're proactive. 
They've got an external focus, so they don't have blinders on. They're not working in silos. They're working from a total cost framework. They have diverse strategies in place as they're sourcing their categories. They want creative collaboration with their suppliers. And that baseline is built on trust. So they want to trust you. They want to collaborate with you as a partner. Suppliers are seen as a key resource and not as an enemy. They want win-win solutions with their supply base. And they want to prevent issues from happening. And typically, it's a fit for purpose. And it's best value bidder and value driven versus lowest cost and commoditized approach. Okay. So you mentioned something which is a total cost framework. What does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, you hear of return on investment, total cost of ownership. So looking at the big picture, not just looking at the acquisition cost, you know, looking at how it fits into the the total supply chain, what the ongoing, if it's, you know, a technology solution, SaaS solution, what that license fee looks like, are upgrades included? What am I going to get out of this? And if we are truly collaborating, are we continuing to expand that solution and add features and benefits throughout the life of the contract. Excellent. Okay, so increasingly what I'm seeing, depressingly, is uh, an emphasis on crappy scores that mean nothing, like the MPS, the Net Promoter Score. Mm -hmm. And what I'm definitely seeing is the smarter organizations, vendors and buyers, are focusing on things like time to value, yes. uh, the cost of inaction, the potential of an investment instead of uh, MPS and ROI. Again, if you're dealing with a strategic organization, do they? most of them, I'm guessing, will understand what we're talking about when we mention these things. So what, what is it? Uh, what, why is time to value so much more useful than a net promoter score? <laughs> well, it should be objective. So, you know, you're looking at both sides, the buyer and the seller, what's being delivered. So is there value creation? Is there value delivery in place? And, you know, you've got to have that open communication. Um, And I feel like with MPS, it's very one-sided. You don't have the full equation on the table. And I think you also have to look at the health of the relationship and the, the health of both sides, so with the buyer and the seller. Interestingly enough, I'm working uh, on this concept of the total profit life cycle, mm-hmm. where both sides can see the value. The vendor makes a profit over the lifetime of the relationship, and their pricing may even reflect, be reflected in that through the outcome uh, mm-hmm. and outcomes that they deliver. Mm-hmm. And the purchaser, is seeing the uh, profit and the value delivered. Because at the end of the day, no one in their right mind is making a purchase unless it creates value within their business. And when they're making purchase decisions, they have limited funds and resources. So they want to make sure that they're making the right decision on the right products and services and the right vendor with the right service levels, and that it's going to give them the uh, longest uh, return over time. So discussing that total profit life cycle, I think, is really important, but it's not something I'm seeing anyone really doing. You're right. 
I feel like that should be front and center because those are that's table stakes in my view. How can you negotiate a contract and you know a long-term partnership with someone if you don't understand what those value drivers are on both sides of the table? Absolutely. Okay. So let's look at the flip side of this, which are the reactive, tactical, um, and potentially adversarial type of purchasing officer. So, you know, what I'd like to do is kind of visualize the tactical reactive is focused on cost reduction. You've kind of got the risk management in the middle. And then what we already talked about is the value creation is that, you know, proactive full value procurement. So what, you know, you've seen for years, Marcus, and, you know, you call kind of dinosaur procurement is very task oriented. They're isolated as a function. They work in silos. They care about that unit price. They rely on tendering and competitive process. That's what they hang their hat on. They're looking at suppliers as very adversarial. What can you do for me? What have you done for me lately? And suppliers are the enemy. And oftentimes it's very win-lose oriented. Then you've got those corrective measures versus, you know, on the proactive side, you're preventing things from happening as much as possible. And when you're reactive, you usually have underdefined standards because you don't understand what the big picture looks like. And then you've got the lowest price bidder and it's price driven versus that value driven decision-making. That's really interesting. What I have noticed in virtually every business I've ever come across is they're trying to manage three things. And if you boil it down to these three things, then your life becomes significantly simpler. And people are trying to manage money, time, and risk. Because people don't really care about risk. What they want is certainty. They, They really want certainty. They want predictability. The minute you start talking about risk, um, then they go into risk management and then they're thinking, oh my God, it's compliance, it's deal prevention. Uh, But what people want is certainty. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to focus the conversation around how you bring certainty, then that will capture people's attention. Mm -hmm. People have limited time. One of the most interesting statistics that I came across recently was from my pal, Michael Brody Waite. And he's done a lot of research around managers who cannot say no. And on average, that costs them 31 hours a month. Now, not knowing when to say no to things, whether it's a a purchase or an offer, um, not knowing how to say no to the wrong demands from your prospect or your supplier. Mm -hmm. These are things that eat up vast amounts of time. And what you do, do is you buy a problem down the line. It's like making a bad hire. What you're doing when you make a bad hire is buying a management problem for later. And money, people are trying to manage money. But um, again, what you keep matters more than what you make. So if you're not helping people to manage and drive profit into their business, which Mm -hmm. most businesses are, not the um, ludicrous ones that are going after growth at any cost so that the VC can flip them but real businesses, then what they're interested in is profit because that's money that they can reinvest that allows them to drive growth. So what's your advice to salespeople in terms of understanding the uh, the buyer's journey in order to incorporate those three critical components? So 
the money, time, and certainty are absolutely critical. And what I teach my clients, you've got to do your homework. Don't show up shoving a solution down someone's throat until you really understand what that company is facing. If it's a publicly traded company, listen to the earnings calls. Do not just read the press releases because you don't hear the inflection in the, it's, it's amazing to me. Well, I I read that the last press release or, you know, I'll read the transcript. No, listen to it because it's an hour long. It's, you know, an hour, 15 minutes. You can take the time. If you're targeting this client, invest in listening to what's being said, what analysts, what investors are are asking these questions. And you will see these executives who are human, they'll stumble, they will break down. You will see where the opportunities are, what they're facing in terms of issues in their supply chain, in their R&D process, new product launches, whatever the case may be, and then connect your solution, your good or service to one of those opportunities, then you will have the ears of your procurement person, your strategic sourcing person, and they will look at you as a problem solver or someone that can come in and innovate alongside them. So again, I I think what seems to be really important here is understanding not only what are the outcomes, What are the critical questions Mm -hmm. that the purchaser is trying to answer? And how will that be measured? And where are they on that scale? So again, in terms of how you're advising your clients, Mm -hmm. um, how do you make sure that they're asking themselves the right questions so that they're thinking as the purchaser? So right questions as they're trying to break through to a new client? Ask open-ended questions. What challenges are you facing? Are you seeing any problems with your current supply base or your current vendor in this space? And how is that relationship going? Are you seeing value there? And then how do they define value? You know, ask those open-ended questions. Um, What do you expect from your suppliers and vendors? What KPIs are you currently measuring? And are those actually delivering the outcome that you want, then you're able to connect your value and sell a solution and do that through story selling. And you can talk about what you've done with other clients, how you've achieved X, Y, and Z results. And that is something that procurement is looking for. What have you done for other people who are in similar situations to me before I sign up with you? I want to see that you've actually been able to do that. So they're really looking for social proof. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what if you're brand new? If Because again, certainly a lot of the people who I've worked with over the last 20 years, they've been very early stage. Mm-hmm. How do you break through Uh, when you don't necessarily have that track record? Yeah, so, you know, I think a demo, through a demo, you know, showing what you can do and then be willing to invest and, you know, be an early beta partner with them. Okay, so for given how hard-pressed people are and how resource-constrained they are, how do you break through their natural resistance? Because, you know, God knows how many pitch attempts are being inflicted on them 
by appallingly bad salespeople. So how do you break through all of that noise and stand apart? So all of the things we've talked about thus far, you know, doing your homework on the client, knowing, you know, how your innovative solution that you've not been able to break through yet to other clients or you're still building, you know, your your client base and then connecting that value proposition. Hey, this is what we can do to solve this problem, to prevent this problem. Um, But you've, you've got to connect your solution, your technology to something that they care about. Because if if it doesn't resonate with them, you're not going to be able to then expand and, and break through into the stakeholder area within the company. So one of the, um, the complaints I've heard so often from salespeople is that procurement is blocking me from speaking for the lines of business. Mm-hmm. So And I suspect this is often the case in those reactive tactical purchasing departments because they're playing the game of gatekeeper um, and they want to control the narrative. But it is a salesperson's job to speak to all the different parts of the business because it's not purchasing that ends up getting the shitty end of the stick if they make the wrong purchase. They might get it in the neck for doing it. But at the end of the day, it's the users, it's the line of business that purchasing is uh, uh, an enabler for. So when faced with that kind of blockage or resistance, what's your advice to salespeople? Well, you've got to be creative and you need to listen more than you talk. And you know, I, I would slightly disagree because COVID has brought to the table the importance of procurement in many of these multinational enterprises, the CFO, the COOs are looking to procurement to be that gatekeeper. So I wouldn't say necessarily that it's tactical or reactive for procurement to be the gatekeeper. Someone has to play that role in the organization. So, Well, I I don't disagree with you in large multinationals. (laughs) Um, I've been interviewing uh, CXOs of every hue and shape. And every one of them is getting 50 to 100 calls a week. So uh, absolutely, they do need um, gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And purchasing and procurement are their right arm when it comes to helping them to implement the board's strategy. And there's no way that they can give time to every salesperson. But I'm talking about the ones who are tactical. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll we'll talk about those, the more strategic ones in a moment. Um, but where you're dealing with a tactical uh, purchasing officer uh, who is intentionally trying to stop you from speaking to other parts of the business, not just the CEO or the CFO, but the people who are at the sharp end of uh, the problems that you're trying to help them to resolve. So I would ask what their objectives are. So some of those open-ended questions so they can build rapport with that procurement person and say, you know, what's the next step here? Would you like to attend a meeting with me? Or are you comfortable with me reaching out to, you know, XYZ person? Or can you please connect me with a decision maker in this area? And, you know, you don't get what you don't ask for. So, you know, I think applying, you know, the open-ended questions that we talked about, having credibility, you know, doing your homework, you should be able to be connected with that business person and that decision maker. Okay, so again, we may may well disagree in a moment, but experience tells me 
that very often when purchasing is saying, I, you have to go through me, I am the only route into the company. What they're often doing is they're on a fishing trip. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're gathering information about a number of suppliers because they're at an early stage of uh, either identifying comparative pricing or they're trying to work out what the solution is. So they're really at a phase of passive looking. They're making space, they're at passive looking. They're not necessarily offering a real RFP. I've certainly come across this many times in my career where fake RFPs have been put out there um, so that benchmarking can happen and Mm -hmm. also so that they can use it as a stick to beat their current supplier uh, when Mm -hmm. they are going to squeeze them on price. So in your experience, when that happens, what's really happening behind the scenes? (laughs) Well, they're looking for free information, obviously. I think, you know, you said it, Marcus. So they're soliciting that information. And you know, I, I would just have a very direct conversation. Hey, you know, we're we're innovative. We want to partner with you. But in order to do that, to for me to properly respond to this, I must have a conversation with this decision maker and really get creative about your response. Because what I also coach my clients on, Marcus, is just responding to a vanilla RFP with a vanilla response is not going to get you to the next round or it's not going to have you stand out. So it's okay to be provocative. It's okay to be creative. And you don't have to answer the questions if you don't feel like it's going to result in future business. So, you know, like I said, I would ask very directly, you know, to be connected and say, hey, are you just playing games with me here? And procurement would rather have someone be direct with them and call them out on their BS because they are the masters of this. You, like you said, you've seen it over and over again. They are issuing, you know, these fake solicitations and these fake bid processes. And, you know, if that's what's actually happening, I would say call them out on it. I absolutely agree. I think um, you need to be ready to enter into constructive conflict. And you have to be ready to have difficult conversations. Four main reasons that companies issue RFPs and ITTs are free consultancy. Salespeople, bluntly, are the single biggest source of continuing adult education on the planet because they they think that by educating, they're going to move the relationship forward. But unless you're clear about why you're doing it, and what happens next, and who is going to be using that information, I think you can find yourself in wasting a lot of time. Sometimes they're using it for leverage uh, because they want to beat up their preferred supplier. And you might be cheaper or you may offer functionality that they don't. Often, it's for intelligence gathering with these fake RFPs. And they also want to make sure that what they have is what they want. So you've got to be really careful. Not all RFPs are bogus, but many of them are. And you need to ask the question, where are you in your decision-making cycle? Are you gathering information? Are you defining the specification? Or are you at the point where you are ready to select the partner? And the first two are free consulting fishing trips. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you can't engage, Mm -hmm. but it does mean you you come in with your eyes wide open. And this is where you become the partner. Um, 
and you're helping them to define their requirement. Mm -hmm. um, because after that is when the real RFP gets issued. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't been involved in helping them to define that, chances are it will have been defined by a competitor. Fair? 100% right, Marcus. And, and that's why I say don't hesitate to call a spade a spade when you see this behavior, when you see these type of solicitations come through, because as a procurement person um, of you know 25 years, I would rather someone be direct with me because then I know that the relationship going forward, whether it's through the bid process or post-contract signature and implementation, that I can trust them and we can have an open dialogue. And they're not just going to, you know, shoot from the hip. So this then brings me to some acts of idiocy on the vendor side. If you are being led by General Custer or Lord Cardigan driving the charge of the Light Brigade or um, the Battle of Little Bighorn, and what they're doing is they're, they're running a narrative like if we're not quoting, we're not selling, then you really do have to ask yourself, am I in the right sales organization? Um, because I think there are far too many organizations that are led by people who uh, operate on a numbers game of quote and hope. And that is the antithesis of selling. And also from a procurement standpoint, I remember a pal of mine was asked to bid to respond to an RFP. And he was about to put finger to keyboard. And I said, just go back and ask how many companies they've sent this out to. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there were 52. Now, if it's going out to 52, it's just to ask yourself the question, do you have more than a snowball chance in hell of this actually turning into a real piece of business? And the answer to that has to be no, because that is just a massive fishing exercise. But loads of organizations go out there and uh, happily respond because they don't qualify. They're not qualifying hard enough. And remember, you're a terrible partner as a vendor, if you go bankrupt because you're not making any sales. Mm -hmm. And when I speak to people, they'll often say, when I ask them what their win rate is, oh, well, it's about one in three, one in four. When you actually dig deeper and you look at the number of sales cycles they start that even get to that final stage, it's somewhere between what uh, 12 to 20. And their actual conversion rate on bids and RFPs is no better than one in four. That's the average. Now, 60% of buying cycles end in the status quo. Now, tell me this. Why would a company that is serious about maybe exploring and making a change end up in the status quo? <laughs> so just in general or in that 52, you know? No, in, in general. Yeah, I think laziness and they're inability to see the art of the possible. It's a waste of both sides' time. Why would you go through a competitive process if you're not willing to change? You know, if COVID has highlighted anything, it's that doing the same thing over and over again, you know, we know that's the definition of insanity. And I would, I would call them out on it um, if, if you're seeing that. Because any strong procurement person who is just going to the market to stay in the same place they're in, that's ridiculous. And it's a waste of both sides' time. Again, the research from a company called Corporate Visions is really very interesting. Mm -hmm. 
they uh, examined the data from 300 CRM systems, so uh, throughout their entirety of these CRM systems. And what they found was 60% of buying cycles ended up in the status quo. Hmm. 29.6% ended up going to the vendor who early in the buying cycle disrupted the current preferences, was able to demonstrate the cost of inaction, was able to demonstrate significant difference in white space between them and everybody else. So they're able to differentiate. And they're able to allay future buyer's remorse. So, um, you know, future regret and blame. Only 10.4% actually went to an RFP. And the average win rate there was one in four, which means that you have a 2.6% chance of winning when it comes down to um, sales cycles that start and or that end up in an RFP. Now, in all honesty, that's pretty bloody terrible. Mm-hmm. So you have the right to know why you've been asked to take part. Mm-hmm. You have the right to ask tough qualification questions and demand the truth in the answers that you get. I agree. You have the right to make sure that there is a good fit and that you can make a profit the right to access the people you need to find out what the real problem is so that you can provide a relevant, timely, and lasting real solution. Mm -hmm. And if the timescales are too short, you have the right to get the time that you need because very often an RFP will plop on your desk and you've got two weeks to respond to war and peace. And if you don't get the above, then you've got the right to no bid. And I, I think far too many uh, vendor organizations are afraid to establish what their rights are and then enforce them. Is that fair? I agree. Yeah, all of those points are very valid and you must do that. And if you don't, then you're wasting your time and you're wasting their time, in my opinion. Absolutely. Okay, so th- this has been really enlightening. What I want to do now is explore the different functions within a purchasing department, uh, if I may. So uh, let's start with the chief purchasing officer. What does their typical, I'm not going to say day, but let's say month look like? Uh, What are the fires they're having to put out? What are they trying to achieve? And how do they measure their own success? (laughs) So what does success look like for a CPO? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this is... A very good question that I think more people should um, be asking because all of the priorities are driven from the CPO and they are looking to optimize their spend, usually consolidate their supply base. And, you know, they want to have the right data at the right time at their fingertips. So getting systems aligned is very, very key. It's been a systemic problem in procurement organizations, not having data readily available. And then they're looking at, how do I optimize my staff? How do we upskill? How do we get the right people in the right roles? And you know that's something that sales deals with as well. And then also, you know, it's those internal stakeholders. How do we then bring the, these category strategies, the marketplace assessments that we've done, and then marry that with all of the stakeholder demands. And that's an ongoing decision. It's very fluid. Um, It's not a one and done. And if it's a one and done, it's what you talked about before. You're going to see the status quo remain. You know, cash is king 
four chief procurement officers now. Um, they have a lot of pressure from CFOs to maintain cash positions in many organizations. And you don't always you know, have to pressure suppliers on price. It could be innovation, it can be productivity. How do we have that strategic collaboration with our supply base and we're getting the optimal performance out of our suppliers? It's really interesting. I interviewed Patty Hatter, who is head of professional services over at Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to her about something. And she asked me a question which flummoxed me to begin with. And it's really stuck in my mind. And the question was, what does it replace? And I think if you take that question, a chief purchasing officer can demonstrate how. So, for example, I'm chief uh, revenue officer for a password-free cybersecurity solution. And in the course of our building our uh, story, what we've realized is that there are all these legacy systems. There are password managers, there are VPNs, there's uh, single sign-on, there's all this other stuff that our solution can replace. Now, when you're talking about $500 per user in a 70,000-person organization, that is a shed load of cash. And you've got three or four or five or six of these different solutions that each employee has associated with them. Uh, a VPN, yeah, that's 10 bucks a month uh, per person. So that's $700,000 times 12. Um, and you're now starting to add up all of this. And so whatever you charge... As long as it delivers a be- as good as or a better solution to what they already have, and they can reduce the legacy um, hangover, and you can reduce the number of call center uh, uh, calls. You know, every time someone has a password reset, that's $70. If you don't understand that whole story, when you go to the CPO, then you're just going to be a commodity provider. And I think it's really important that you have to do the heavy lifting before you turn up. You've got to do the research. You've got to see what they're doing at the moment and work out how can I make their lives simpler, easier, better? How can I save them or make the money? How can I reduce the amount of time that people are spending on unproductive or non-productive activity? And what can I do to increase certainty and eliminate risk? Yep. Absolutely. Marcus, you're spot on. And, you know, that solution, what are all the branches on the tree today and what branches can I eliminate and bring productivity? And before you sell your solution, it's pulling all of those attributes together so that by the time you're talking to the CPO, the CPO is like, I have to do this. We have to do this. This is, you know, without a doubt, the right solution because they're experiencing it and, you know, all of the employees in the organization, and I hear this from people every day, you know, who have gone through acquisitions or gone through divestitures and they're trying to, you know, consolidate systems. There are sign-ins, you know, and different passwords for different tools all over the place. Um, And it's a real problem for productivity in these companies. And passwords deliver zero value. All of the, I mean, what they do is they create 80% of the opportunities for hackers to break in. It's an unproductive activity without wanting to go down that road too much. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about what the next rung down is from the CPO. 
Yeah. So typically it would be the head of indirect. So we talked about direct and indirect. So head of direct, head of indirect, and then you would get into subcategories from there, but some organizations are set up by business function. So you could have head of, you know, information technology for strategic sourcing procurement, and then they would work with the CIO. You could have, you know, head of manufacturing, they would work with manufacturing. So it depends if they are function aligned or if they are category or marketplace aligned. Right. Okay. And in terms of the drivers that determine their behavior, their decision-making, how they are measured, do those uh, vary dramatically, whether they're function or otherwise aligned? The thing is, you've got kind of this hamster wheel, if you will. And, you know, my friend Phil Idison created this. And it's something that I, I would encourage people to take a look at. But you could have changing priorities. So you could have a CPO that's very cost focused, or you could have a CPO that is very relationship focused. And you have to have a balance because if you're on one end of the spectrum, you know, then it causes certain behaviors. And if you're on the other end, it causes certain behaviors. And if you're too relationship focused and you only care about pleasing the business, then it's a popularity contest, right? right? I've been in that world. But if you're too cost focused, then you're you're blinded by, okay, just that acquisition cost, not that total cost of ownership, not that innovation, not that long-term productivity. So you, you have to have a balance, no matter how you are structured, you have to have that balance in place. I personally am a fan of being aligned to how you acquire goods and services in the marketplace. Um, because then I think you can bring those best practices into your organization. If you are internally aligned, you will be operating in silos and you could have multiple people buying the same thing and you could be competing against one another internally. That's my personal view. Very interesting. Okay. So let me ask you this. If you're dealing with a complex organization, and you've identified that you are going to be able to replace a bunch of stuff, drive efficiencies, and so on. Who are the best allies to have within the business so that when you speak to purchasing, they are already very focused and, and their antenna are up because now you're speaking their language? So you're talking about an idea that generates organically within a business unit or a function. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I would talk about, so there are different value levers that procurement, you know, looks for. And I would look at speaking their language and using those value levers as you're talking. So, you know, there's commercial value levers, there are process value levers, and there are technical levers. So is it around supplier consolidation? Is it around bundling? So, you know, you talked about eliminating activities. Am I, you know, optimizing it from a location perspective? So it could be, you know, consolidating warehouses or distribution centers, demand management. So, you know, changing the specifications. Um, so cutting back on volumes purchased and then through proactive planning, process optimization, you know, you could have standardization and redesign, and then you've got the make versus buy. Do I keep it in-house or do I take it out if it's not a core activity? 
Okay, that's interesting. So uh, again, if we think about the choreography and the structure of these conversations, how do you open a conversation that will capture the attention of a procurement professional mm-hmm. in such a way that you will stand apart? Yeah, so this is what I um, talk to my clients about as well, Marcus. And the key is making procurement the hero. So if it's a function in the business, if it's a group, a component, a business unit, you want to set procurement up so that you know they're delivering value. Oftentimes, they are very underappreciated historically. They can be the punching bag for, for different components. So speaking their language, so those value levers we just talked about, and you know, also, if you're going to be driving efficiency and productivity, you're speaking procurement's language. That's what they are after. And if they're only after that acquisition cost, then they're a dinosaur, um, as we've talked about because they have got to look at that total cost optimization. And it's more than just that initial unit price or acquisition cost. Interesting. Okay. If we look at the political landscape that chief purchasing officers occupy, who's looking for them to fail to succeed? Who is affected if they do a good job or a bad job? I'd say everyone. (laughs) Because, you know, procurement is about maximizing OPEX, so operational expenditures, as well as maximizing margins and driving sales. So your chief procurement officer is supporting every function in the company. So if you've got your team that's supporting marketing and sales, and they're working with different channel partners, they want to ensure that the PR firm, the digital agency are aligned to metrics that can be measured and tied to top line growth. So just because you've got customer engagement and someone clicked on something doesn't mean it resulted in a sale. You know, you've got to tie it to those, you know, clear metrics that impact the profitability and the success and long-term viability of the company. One of the really interesting observations is that uh, often salespeople will give away their power because procurement are often very good at posturing. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, again, uh, in fact, let me explore this first. Um, on an average week, how many vendors did you typically speak to and purchase from? Mm, depend what mood I was in. <laughs> Um, I mean, you can talk to as many people as you want. I mean, your door is pounded on multiple times a day. I mean, you're getting, you know, cold calls. Typically now it's, you know, cold emails or you get hit up through LinkedIn. I mean, but I would speak with probably between 10 and 20 suppliers, depending on the week and depending on the internal demands. And, you know, like I said, it depends, you know, what kind of mood people are in and and how you position yourself. If you've got a canned email that comes through and you're not at all relative to the business that I'm in, I'll throw you into my trash can and I'll block you because I don't want to see any messages from you in the future. 
Well, that's a really important point. So make sure you're timely, you're contextually relevant, and you deliver value because one miss hit and you're in spam and you're going to be blocked. Now, if we look at your department, Mm -hmm. how many vendors were you guys speaking to on an average week? (laughs) Hundreds. Sometimes, yeah, a lot. Okay. Now, as a salesperson, you're probably speaking to, you're in front of maybe two or three buyers a day mm-hmm. versus the hundreds that the procurement team are. So it's very easy to think that they have a huge advantage over you because they're used to dealing with uh, salespeople. Mm-hmm. But actually, what they're used to dealing with are crap salespeople who turn up and talk product and feature benefit without having any context or relevance. Most vendors turn up to show photos of the ugly baby instead of find a way of being relevant to the purchaser. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is that procurement, their purchasing behavior is often driven by the demands of production. Mm -hmm. And production is driven by the demands of the sales operation within their organization. Mm -hmm. And so... As Jill already alluded to, they're often underappreciated, but also uh, often procurement has far less power than they posture. So don't make the mistake. And she, the, the point that she made earlier is you have to make them the hero. Mm-hmm. But I think the big mistake that people make is they enter into this with an adversarial mindset and, and they see procurement as the enemy. Don't make them the enemy. Don't even make them an accomplice where you're propagating poor performance and poor behavior. Make sure that you become their ally. Help them achieve their outcomes. Help them become the hero. And recognize that actually, despite the fact that they are exposed to a lot more vendors, your job is to stand apart. You differentiate in how you sell more than what you sell. At the end of the day, if you're selling an ERP system, it's an ERP system. If you're selling routers, it's a router. And if you're selling widgets, they're widgets. But what they care about is how do you stand apart? What is it that makes you different in terms of not only how you sell, but the overall lifetime value that they're going to achieve? How quickly can you help them to achieve the results that they are tasked to to achieve by the board? Yep. Yeah. Spot on, Marcus. And I would add, if you get a meeting or a conversation with procurement, don't sell out of the gate. Listen to them. Ask them those open-ended questions we talked about. Build a relationship and then digest that and then have a follow-up with them. And out of the gate, you may not have an opportunity to sell or compete but you may be able to connect them with someone within your network. Hey, you mentioned, you know, you were trying to solve this problem or you had this opportunity. I'd like to introduce you to someone. So build that rapport with procurement and they will look at you as a trusted advisor. And when you are ready to sell and you have that opportunity, they will remember that. And they will come back to you and say, hey, they didn't just sell out of the gate. They really wanted to understand, you know, what the challenges, what the opportunities were that we are currently facing, what my day looks like, and how they can help me 
and how they can help my organization be successful. I'm going to recommend a book by a pal of mine, Fred Copestake. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's written a book. It's called Selling Through Partnering Skills. Uh, let me just double check that. Yeah, Selling Through Partnering Skills. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take issue with the concept of the trusted advisor for the simple reason that I think it's become hackneyed, overused, mm-hmm. and it's also lost its power. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be- behave as trusted partners. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most important things that we can offer any purchaser is buyer safety. And I I think what's missing from most sales organizations is that they are trying to make the sale. But at the heart of everything we do, we have to have the customer. And at the heart of that, we have to make sure buyer safety is central. Mm -hmm. They need to know that they can trust us, that we will be relevant that our service will help them deliver the outcomes that they need. And that means we need to operate through our values. We need to be rigorously authentic. Mm -hmm. We need to focus on the customer's success, not our own, which means that we have to surrender the outcome that we want in favor of the outcome that they want. And as Jill has said, if you can't help them, make sure that you refer someone else who can, even if it's a competitor. Mm-hmm. You need to approach it with a win-win or no-deal mindset. You need to get down and dirty in the trenches and do difficult work together. You've got to roll up your sleeves and be their ally. Um, you've got to be vulnerable enough to admit when you don't know the answer or when you've got it wrong, or if there is an objection, you raise it before they do so that there it's, it's completely transparent. You communicate with clarity. You're um, constructively challenging. And because you're operating as a partner and you're operating with mutual respect, the emphasis is on delivering the outcomes and delivering their success. Mm -hmm. If you fail to do any of those things, then you will be treated like a commodity provider and treated at arms, uh, pushed to arm's length. Is that Mm -hmm. fair? Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, Jill, we, we need to wrap up, but tell me this. You've got a book in the offing, if I remember rightly. I am in the process of writing um, a couple ebooks on how to become a procurement insider, how to speak procurement's language, and then effectively manage the relationship with procurement and know how you're positioned as a seller and the commodity or category you're selling, and then negotiating with procurement. So it'll be a three part ebook series. So if someone wants to get onto your mailing list or uh, get hold of those books, how can they get hold of you? Yep. So sign up um, for my mailing list at businessfierce.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I post regularly and I'm happy to have a conversation with you and see how we can partner together. Excellent. Jill Robbins, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, go to Apple Podcasts and give an honest review. It can be one star or five star or anywhere in between. Now, if you are the owner or the founder of a technology company, and what you're really looking to do is grow your business in a manageable way, but achieve rapid hyper growth without the wheels coming off, and you want to build a sustained business built on strong foundations, 
with highly engaged and highly productive employees and customers who stick with you year after year after year, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. You can email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. If you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone else who would be, then please do get in touch and maybe connect us. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.